0: Anyway, back to the podcast. It's
1: a delight to be here with you. I apologize for my voice; a great way, uh, my voice has decided that uh, it wanted to go and visit other warmer climates or something or something. Uh But we've done a number of teaching sessions over the last couple of days, and so this is what I've got left. Hopefully, it'll loosen up as we, we keep talking. <clears throat> I wanted to just share it with you briefly as we start what the theme is and kind of where we're going with this. This has been a lifelong message that God's been teaching me, the concept of the Heavenly Father's blessing over our lives and learning how to give that blessing away to other people. To me, that really is the most important thing that we have to do because it becomes blessing then becomes the, the most beautiful uh, attraction to the church. We live this kingdom culture in a way showing the love and the kindness of God. And it's amazing how people in our, in our culture, in our broken culture, desperately want to be part of a family where they feel like they're, they belong, they fit, they have a purpose, they have meaning. So we're going to talk a bit about that today. And also we can see how Satan himself uh, strategizes to take out family, to, to destroy blessing. So today what we're going to do is teach, we have a session, we'll do some prayer ministry, we'll do another teaching session after lunch and do some more prayer ministry where we get to experiment with this and get to put it into practice in very uh, specific and practical ways. <clears throat> a couple of stories before we get started. Uh, three weeks ago, March the 3rd, I placed a phone call to uh, our oldest daughter. My wife and I have been married for almost 47 years. And so uh, she's not here today, but imagine a five-foot beautiful Norwegian gal. Hope it's okay that we can talk about Norwegians in a Swedish camp, but anyway. There's um, uh, Norwegian. Okay, we we'll all know okay, great. But Forty-five years ago on March the 3rd, we welcomed our first child. And I remember being so excited as the days were passing and we were looking forward to her birth. And it was just something we had dreamed about. We were, I was excited to be a dad. and We were excited to be young parents. And everything that I thought that I had done to prepare for this moment when she was born completely evaporated when she was in my arms for the first time. I recognized in that moment that everything I had dreamed and lived for, this child was placed in my arms and, and it was my responsibility God-given stewardship to my wife and I. And I realized I had no idea what I was doing. I thought, where is the instruction manual that comes with this child? You know, how do I know what I'm supposed to do? All I knew intuitively is that I love this child in a way that was unreasonable. If I could say that, you know, she hadn't done anything to serve me. She had not made me tea yet. She hadn't, you know, she hadn't done the laundry. She just showed up and invaded our world. Matter of fact, she invaded our nights as well as our days. You know, for those of you, their parents, you know what I'm talking about. But I also knew in that moment that I would give my life for this child. In that moment, in that instant. And I looked into her eyes as an infant and I said, I love you. And I can't understand why I love you. So on March 3rd this year, 45 years after that moment, uh, I did what I'm gonna talk to you folks about. I called my daughter, she's a nurse practitioner, she's an amazing young woman, mother of three, fantastic husband. And uh, she was at work and I purposely left her a voicemail because I was pretty sure I couldn't get through a a conversation without coming apart at the seams. And frankly, I didn't make it through this conversation, even though it was voicemail. I called my daughter and I, I affirmed her and I told her how much I loved her and how much value she had added to our life and how she had inspired us and how proud I was of her. And that that day, 45 years before, she probably wouldn't appreciate knowing that I told you she's 45. You wouldn't tell that if you looked at her, she looks like she's 25. Anyway, um, as does my wife, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) But I told my daughter how much I loved her, left this message, poured out my heart. I said, the moment you took your first breath, you took my breath away. (laughs) Said a few more things, cried a little bit, hung up the phone, uh, rather unceremonially, and uh, a couple of hours later, I got a text from my daughter from work on her lunch break. She said, "Dad, you did it again. You made me cry." And I thought that wasn't my intention. Yeah, I knew what she was meaning. My intention was to make her feel loved. And have her feel like she was blessed and and that I was so excited the moment she was born and I'm still excited 45 years years later for the life that she gave and the joy she brings to our family. The fact she's given us three beautiful grandchildren that I adore. I am so grateful for this gift of family. I'm also grateful. So grateful that I choose to tell them that I'm grateful, which is the power of the blessing. We use our words to speak blessing and affirmation. Second quick story. This has been a lifelong uh, journey for me to discover this because my family of origin was loving kind. Uh, You'll hear more about that uh, second session, but words uh, and speaking out words of affirmation was not a normal part of our family of origin, except for my grandfather, my paternal grandfather. He was everything to me. He was and I don't know how I knew this, but I knew that I was his favorite. You know what I mean by that? He had like 50 grandkids, because there were nine children in the family. And I don't literally, I think there were probably 50 grandkids. There was a ton of us. I'm the eldest of six, so there you go. But, and I think he treated us all the same, but I felt as if I was his favorite. And growing up, I would spend a lot of time with him. Matter of fact, if he was in the room, I would try to sit right beside him because I just love to be near my grandfather because he made me feel valued and special with a firm. This fast forward the story, I'm about 28, 27, 28 years old. My wife and I are, are uh, involved in a missionary organization and I'm traveling close to where my grandfather lived and for a conference. And I got the message from my grandfather, that uh, my grandmother, that grandpa was, was failing very quickly. He had been in bed for about two weeks, had moments where he was no longer lucid. Matter of fact, he had very few lucid moments. And the, the kind of the indication was, the invitation was, if you want to see your grandfather alive, you should come now. So I, I made plans, I went to see grandpa. Again, he was, in, the, he was in, his, in his room, in his hospital bed at home. And when I walked in, uh, though he had been largely comatose, he rallied. And he wanted to come. And he wanted to get up. My grandma, he hadn't been up for like four weeks or three and a half weeks, but he wanted to get up and he wanted to come to the living room, wanted to be in his chair. So I, I got him up to his walker and I basically walked him to the chair, helped him into his chair. He had no strength at all in his arms or his legs. I had basically carried him and put him into his chair. And here he is, he's partly comatose, partly awake, and he's he's wanting me, he, he asked me to tell the stories from the mission field. So I'm telling these stories. And then I don't know, about a half hour into this, he just stops. And something happened that I can't explain. But this is where this concept of the blessing started for Steve. He, he suddenly, he put his arms on the sides of his recliner and, and he, he stood up with strength and vitality. He stood up and grabbed my shoulders. And he began to pray over me with tears. He said, and he began to pray. Actually, he began to prophesy over me. That's what he did. He said, Lord, I pray for my grandson, Steve. Got, you, I know you've got a call in his life. You're going to send him to many nations. He's going to, and, and he began to talk about, uh, and actually almost, I would say, prophetically predict the things that were going to happen in my life. That God was going to send me to many places to show the love of God, to demonstrate the call of God and the passion of God for his people like you. And then he began to uh, to just pray about my future and my family, and it was the most amazing thing. And I knew at that moment I was trembling. I knew something was happen- happening. There was a, a divine exchange that began to occur, though I couldn't have, and I didn't have words for it, but something was going on that was powerful. And then suddenly my grandfather just dissolved into tears as he was praying over me and weeping, and mostly weeping and very little prayer. And then finally he just kind of slowly kind of, sank back into his chair and it was over and we talked a little bit and that next day I left my grandfather died a couple of days later and I thought I have no idea what this is what just happened there and God began to speak to me and, and later and actually began to re- reveal to me this power of the blessing because I began to see it and the word of God and where fathers and grandfathers would convey their blessing on their kids and their grandkids. And it so captured me. I thought, Lord, I need to understand this. What I didn't realize is that God gave me an example. He gave it to me through my grandfather before I even knew what it was and it actually has transformed and shaped the course of my life. Let me step into the teaching. I believe that our words have the power to transform lives. That is God's intention that families, that families would become the, the greenhouses for destinies. That we would step into this place where God would allow his family culture. That the culture of the kingdom of God is a, is a culture of blessing. How do I know that? Well, it began in the beginning. Let's go back to the very beginning of time. Every creation day. Remember that? Day one, God created. He spoke over the void and created. And then what did he do at the end of the day? He pronounced something. He said, it is day two. He created. And he said, it is Every day, all through creation, all six days of creation, God pronounced blessing over what he had made. God is a God of blessing. And he wants and he desires to do that. So he pronounces blessing. And then what happens is, you know the narrative. What happens next is that Adam and Eve um, fall into sin and they are tempted by Satan. And, and they, they, you see this incredible and devastating fall. From this place of this beautiful Garden of Eden, this perfect family environment, this perfect culture of blessing, where it's sinless, profound culture, to a place of sinfulness. And what happens in the very first family? Well, brothers squabble and Cain kills Abel. And you begin to see the effects of sin, the effects not anymore of blessing, but of cursing and brokenness that enters the family line fast forward the story the scripture tells us things went from bad to worse so ultimately God through Noah had to do a reset a restart and then after Noah God calls a man from the earth the a man by the name of Abram that wasn't even a he was developed but he was an idol worshiper according to scripture and God called him and said I have a plan for you Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, essentially says this. God's called Abraham. And says, I, I've got a plan for your life. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a blessing. And, and through you, I will bless all the families, the families of the earth. So you see this profound call, this, this blessing call. And so God says, look, I want to reestablish the kingdom culture. I'm going to choose a man to do that. And it's interesting that, that you see as you play out the storyline that Abraham blessed his son Isaac. And Isaac blessed, remember the story between Esau and Jacob? There's interesting interplay there. Let me pause here and make a comment about that. As I skip the stone across the top of the pond here, it's quite interesting that Jacob and Esau were twin brothers. And when they were queued up in in the birth canal, uh, Jacob was the first position. Esau overtook him, and the Bible says that Esau was born first, but Jacob had a hold of his heels, like, no, buddy, it's my turn, and so you see the struggle between these two uh, twins all through their life, it's quite interesting. And then uh, and Esau had the favor of his father Isaac, because Esau was a rough and tumble kind of a guy, but Jacob was more uh, aligned with his mother, and And the story makes it quite interesting if you read through those those, those chapters. In the book of Genesis. But Esau came in from the field, he was starved. Jacob had made a big pot of stew. And Esau sold his birthright. He sold his inheritance for a bowl of soup. Big deal, guys. Inheritance in those days. For the firstborn, he got between 70 and 80 percent of the father's income. 70 and so he was willing to treat all that for a bowl of soup. But later in the storyline, Jacob deceives his father Isaac to get what should have been Esau's blessing the blessing that the father would would give to the firstborn son before he died and Esau was more ticked about losing the blessing than he was at losing the inheritance that should tell us something about how at that time, can I say every time every place, every culture the blessing is incredibly powerful incredibly powerful Genesis chapter 18 gives us a clue. Why did God choose Abraham? Why did he pick him? Well, the scripture says in, in Genesis chapter 18, the storyline is that God is on his way to Sodom and Gomorrah to see the, the evil that's being done in those two cities. And, and he, he makes a detour and, and goes to see Abraham. And he says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Genesis 18, 17 through 19. Since Abraham will surely become a great nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. Would be blessed through him. You see, because I've shown him, I've, I've known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. You see, the reason I believe, according to the scripture that God chose Abraham, is that he knew that Abraham would command his kids, that his kids would follow in dad's footsteps. If you want to start, if you want to start a multi-generational uh, culture shift, you start with a man who can follow up. If you want to start a culture, the kingdom culture of blessing and do a reset, then you, you pick a man who will be able to transfer that to his family, to his kids, and to his grandkids. You find a, a founder who can model and inspire generations. That's what God did. He found Abraham. And if you see that, if you fast forward to the end, this is all foundational stuff. If you fast forward to the very, chapter 49 in Genesis, it's really interesting that Jacob gathers all his sons together. He called at end of life and he says, gather together and that I may tell you what will befall you in the last times. Gather together and hear you sons of Jacob and listen to Jacob, your father. And he begins to speak over their lives against telling them both what would be and what they were. He was calling out both their identity and calling out their future through the next verses. In the next 26 or 27 verses, he goes son by son, as he describes the plan and call of God over their lives. And then verse 28, this is the summation of that chapter. All these were the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their fathers spoke to them. And he blessed them, and he blessed each one of them according to his own blessing. He blessed them, each one of them. This was the family culture. Now, it's interesting that when I began to study some of this, I... I thought, there's something I don't get here. I don't understand how this blessing thing works. I see it, and I see it in, in, the, in the lineage of Abraham. I see it in the Jewish culture, the family of Abraham. But I don't understand it, so I began to study and try to figure out how this works, particularly. Uh, frankly, folks, we're not a culture of honor in North America, we're, we're actually a culture of sarcasm. But we're not even talking about a culture of honor. Uh, Many, uh, I work in the South Pacific a fair bit, and that's a culture of honor. Just because I have this color hair, I'd be greatly honored. Or if I have no hair, I'd be greatly honored there. The honor age is interesting that, you know, they would, they, they, and I have to be careful when I go into a culture of honor, because if I have done this, little side note here, I went into, uh, I was in Fiji, and they served us this beautiful tropical fruit. If you can imagine pineapple picked, fresh, cut, and served, Oh, it was delicious. And I made a comment. Oh, the pineapple was wonderful. If you say it once, it's a compliment. But the ladies in the kitchen walked by. And I, the second time, I said, Oh, I love the pineapple. It's so good. We never get pineapple like this in Canada. And they were, Oh, thank you, Tola. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you, Tala, Tala. The, the. And then on my way, I, I popped the ki- in the kitchen, stuck my head in and I said, Thank you for the dinner. Everything was delicious. I loved the tropical fruit. The pineapple was amazing. See, what I discovered... In that culture, with a culture of honor, if you, if, you say, uh, if you give an affirmation and say it once, you're saying thank you. If you're asking twice or you say it twice, you're actually saying pay attention. If you bless them or, or thank them a third time, you're asking specifically for more of it. And when you're uh, in a culture of honor, if you're, if you're the distinguished honored guest, guess what every single person brought me from that day onward? <laughs> I had pineapple. My, I, had, I ate so, it was at every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, they brought me these massive, the biggest pineapples, literally like this big, they could find. And by the time I had been there for three weeks, my mouth had broken up with canker sores from the acid and the pineapple. True story. And by the time, when it was time to fly back to Canada, I had a pile of pineapple in my room. I literally I had 18 pineapples. They were all big <laughs> in my room and they lamented that Pastor Steve was not taking the pineapples with him back to Canada. I couldn't, you know, they weren't, they weren't egg inspected, you know, but it, I, I discovered something. You see, in my culture, in many of our cultures, we're not a culture of blessing, but we're, we're a culture of sarcasm, but we're not even a culture of honor. But a culture of honor is not the same as a culture of blessing. See, a culture of honor can affirm a leader, but a culture of blessing is where we speak blessing over everybody. Yeah. We, we do that. It's much grander, much bigger than a culture of honor even. So what is the culture of blessing that we see through the Abrahamic family, through... Let me give it to you quickly, uh, two things here. First of all, you see this culture of blessing uh, demonstrated on those specific milestone moments in a person's life. There were five of them in the average Jewish home. It was uh, at birth, let me give those to you, at birth, at puberty, um, when they became a young man or young woman, an adult that was when they made their career choice at marriage and at old age. At birth in the Jewish family at day eight, they would bring the little boys to the temple <coughs> dedicated and a blessing would be pronounced over that newborn day eight. Uh, at 13 or 14, you, you're familiar with Bar Mitzvah, Bath Mitzvah for girls. It was an opportunity for that. It was a rite of passage from childhood to adulthood. And part of that rite of passage was, was gathering the leaders, the elders, and praying over that 13-year-old and praying them into adulthood, speaking identity, high value, and bright future over their lives. And then when we pass forward the story, when a, a young man or a young, particularly in the culture, a young man would enter a career, the father would announce blessing over his son. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. Of course, at marriage, Jewish wedding ceremonies are fantastic. The family gathers around a part of the, of the marriage ceremony is speaking blessing over the new couple. So I've tried to, to suggest that to North American couples when I do weddings. But sometimes it's hard because the families just can't do it. And it breaks my heart. So I find a way to put it in there myself. In my, in my ceremony, I will find a way to speak blessing over the couple because to me it's incredibly important. It's one of those those milestone moments. And of course, finally, number five, uh, at old age, the illustration of my grandfather, he spoke blessing over me, but also it goes back the other way. Often the family, the children would rise up. Proverbs 31, they rise up and call their mother blessed. So you see this picture of uh, in old age before passing, the family, mom, dad would bless the kids and the kids would rise up and do that. But it didn't stop there within the Jewish home. Uh, they would see this on a regular basis. Let me tell a quick story. How are we doing here for time? Okay, good. Um, <clears throat> I've tried to take these milestone moments and, and invest those in, in my family structure, how we live our life. And so one of the ways we do that is, is that uh, on birthdays, I mentioned I called my oldest daughter on her birthday a couple weeks ago. But my youngest, we have five grandchildren and their age, they spend an age from almost 22 all the way down to thirteen. But when the 13-year-old was turning six, uh, we, we were learning these things. And so we have a, this little thing that we do in our family where we would, the birthday person uh, kind of is in the hot seat, if I can say that. And we just go around the room and everyone that's present will speak a word of affirmation, a little blessing, so to speak. Maybe a little prayer over that birthday person It's our way of conveying or conferring the blessing on them. And my granddaughter is six. She was a little petite thing. And. She doesn't particularly like this spotlight, so this was not, you know, uh, it wasn't easy for her. She's kind of shy, but she climbed up in my lap, and so she was in Papa's lap, and she fell, she snuggled down in there. And we're going around the room; everyone's seeing something positive and affirming. And her siblings were—I so, you know they were like eight and ten. And we're so happy that our little sister shares her toys with us. That was the blessing. So it wasn't like it was a profound, prophetic moment, but it was sweet and it was heartfelt. Praise God! And everyone goes around. It's my turn. I'm last. And I don't know, something touched me uh, and, and I was getting weepy and so I was trying to get those words out and they were, they, it was more blubber than actual words if you know what I mean. And I was, I was, I was oh you know, it was a mess and little Nevea is her name, Heaven spelled backwards, Nevaeh. She just tapped my arm and she said, it's okay Papa, I know, I know. Can we have Cape now? <laughs> you know, as much as uh, we all laughed and that kind of broke the moment, they, we did what you did. Only it was the laughter was a little greater because they were laughing at Papa. Yeah, uh, but in some ways I think that was a win because she knew. I didn't have to tell her; she knew. And I think that's the goal of a blessing a culture, a family culture blessing is We grew up in a family, and it gives us a sense of confidence, of assurance that we're wanted, that we're loved, we're valued. And that's what, in a Jewish home, in addition to those five milestone moments that i referenced, and every single Shabbat, every single Friday, night, every single evening going into the, the weekly Sabbath, the father would bless his family. And he would go around the room and, with his children, and I wish I could... Uh, carry this. I don't know if I can carry this. But the father would go around the room and he would, he would speak over his sons and he would put his hands on their shoulders and he would he said, may God make you like Ephraim and like Manasseh. Uh, and then he would speak specifically to something going on in their world. And, and may God grant you a, a quick mind to learn those things you're learning in school or whatever. And he, would, and he would kiss his son on the top of their forehead. And then he would go every child to his daughters, may God make you like Rachel. And Leah, and may God make you a, a blessed in all that you do. May, may your beauty shine from inside and out. And he would kiss his daughters. And then he would turn uh, to this day and speak blessing over his wife. May God make you like Sarah. Mother of the multitudes. Woman of God. And then he would kiss his wife in front of them. Can you imagine what that does for children? The sense of security that's provided. And of course then the wife would turn to her husband and say, may the Lord bless you and make you like Abraham. May you be a man of faith. May you be a man of courage. May you lead your family with integrity. And that's what the kids hear every single week. And they grew up in this family, this culture of blessing. And it, and, and my theory is that, that because of this culture of blessing, God has favored them. It's not because they're special but because of the culture that's established. Let me give you something that I find interesting. Maybe it, and again, this I can't prove this, but I recently read, you're familiar with the Nobel Peace Prize. It's the award that's given for contributions to society, contributions to humanity. And this is a stat that I read prior to the year 2017, the last year that I found information. There were 902 Nobel Peace Prize recipients, 902. Of the 902 Nobel Peace Prize recipients, 203 were Jewish. Let me put that in reference. 23.2% of the recipients were Jewish. Anybody want to guess what the percentage of popu- in the world population Jews actually consist of? What's the population? What's the percentage? Like nine million people. What's the percentage in the global, of the global population? Anybody want to make a guess? Half a percent? What's that?
0: Half of a percent?
1: Yeah, even less. 0.2. Wow. 0.2% And you have a they're responsible for 22 or well, 23% of all the Nobel Peace Prize. And I don't, here's my theory. I, don't, I can't prove this, but my theory is that because they've grown up in this culture of blessing and affirmation, they, they just have wind under their wings. They have the confidence that we can do this. And that's, I'd like to propose to you that, that a culture of blessing is the, is the greenhouse for destinies that's where I started and that God wants us to speak blessings so that they can step into our kids and people around us can step into God's plan and purpose for their lives so what is the blessing what does it consist of let me give it to you three primary things the blessing consists of first of all it establishes a sense of identity it establishes a sense of identity and, and speaking blessings specifically around the concept of identity answers those unspoken heart questions uh, what do you believe about me Do I fit? Do I belong? Do I have a place in this family? Do I have a place in this life? Identity, you fit. For me to call my daughter and say, when you arrived, you took my breath away. I love you more today than I did 45 years ago, if that's possible. So establishes a sense of identity. Secondarily, the blessing communicates a sense of high value. What do you feel about me? Answering those unspoken, often unspoken heart questions, was I wanted? Uh, what is my value to you? Am I worth defending? Is my heart worth defending? Those questions. And, and it's, it's the, where we can step into this place of nobility as men and women and speak over our kids. We wanted you. We look forward to your arrival. And it and, and answers these questions. And, and truthfully, as we'll talk later, every one of us, no matter how old we are, still carry these questions in our heart. They, we do, which is true. We may suppress it. We may allow the, the landslide of, of difficulty to cover over, but there's still doubt inside of us. We want to know that we fit. We want to know that we belong. We want to know that we have value. And thirdly, the blessing communicates a sense of high, uh, bright future. It projects a bright future, which answers those unspoken heart questions: What are your hopes for me? Do I have what it takes to be successful? Do you think I can live a, a life of significance? Do you think I can have a life of purpose? Do you think I can do this? Can I do life? And that's why I think that the Jewish guys and gals have won so many Nobel Peace Prizes, because often within the Jewish home, the mom and dad would say, have you met my son? He's three years old. He's going to be a lawyer or whatever. And, and they build future, bright future into the kids for the time, maybe a little bit of performance expectation that these people dripped up. But nonetheless, you, you see them as parents communicating, my son, my daughter, they're going to be amazing. We grew up within that culture. We, we see how the heavenly father, God, identity, high value, bright future the three components uh, God himself we see modeled this over his son Jesus at Jesus water baptism and this is Matthew chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 it says and when he was baptized Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying this is my Beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. So we see these three components, identity, high value, and bright future in this simple passage. Uh, we see identity, this is my son. We see high value, this is my beloved son. That word beloved means loved and cherished given my life for. And we see the concept of bright future, I'm well pleased. Other, other uh, gospels tell this story and they say, I'm well pleased, listen to him. But what we miss in our, in our reading of this because we're not from the Middle East is we miss the fact that this, these are the words that a father would speak over a son when he entered a career. Dad would take son down to the city gates gather the city elders together and he they would announce listen, gather around men of the city elders of the city this is my beloved son Eric whom I'm well pleased he's decided to, be, to go into He's, he's a PR specialist and a consultant. I am so excited that my son Eric has chosen this career. And here, it, it did two things. First of all, it wasn't, just a, it wasn't just an announcement. It was an affirmation in front of the entire village, in front of the whole city, that I am okay with my son's choice. Not only am I okay with my son's choice, I'm okay with my son. I love my boy. I'm so excited. And you, if you have a problem with that, come talk to me you got to go through me to get to my son. So it was a defense. It was a protection that we see, And God modeled that to us and for us through Jesus. Eric, I'm wondering if you would give my voice a break. Would you read that scripture here? Yeah.
0: This is Ephesians
1: 1, 3 through 8.
0: Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by jesus christ himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to have bound toward
1: us in all wisdom and prudence. I love this passage because in, in this passage, Ephesians chapter 1, we see the power of God's blessing over us, over the church. It was not only written, I think, for the, the church emphasis, but it's also, it also applies to all of us as well. So we see the elements of the blessing, identity, high value, and bright future identified here in this passage. Where are they? Well, uh, identity. Were his sons. The Bible tells us that he predestined us to adoption as sons. So high value in this passage is found simply in the word adoption. What, what is adoption? Well, there are four things adoption communicates to us. First of all, it communicates choice. God picked you. God wanted you. This is not like uh, when I grew up in in elementary school. We'd have uh, recess and we'd we'd divide up for teams for whatever, baseball or soccer. We'd have two captains. Remember those days? Anybody else endure that? Uh, Yeah, and so you have two captains, and so, and they were picking. What did, you know, what position in the pick did you not want to be? The last. No one wanted to be last, because you're pretty sure that if you got picked last, no one really wanted you to be on the team. That's not the way this works. There's no pecking order in the kingdom of heaven. The Bible tells us very clearly that God wanted us. He, he predestined us. That means before, before the world, he predestined. He had plans and purposes for our lives. And we were given full uh, rights of, of, of sonship and inheritance. The king has a plan for you, for your life. And he loves you desperately and deeply. So, first of all, adoption involves choice. Secondly, it's done in love it says that he chose us and he loves us with, with an everlasting love we can make. He, he chose us without blame before him in love. Very clearly stated here in this passage. And then thirdly, it's based on the good pleasure of his will. And what does that mean specifically? Well, I, I love how I think the message translation uh, references this passage where it says that adoption was placed on... The good pleasure as well. It, it, God chose us and it gave him great joy to do this. It wasn't a hardship. He said, yes, I could. This is so exciting for me. And this incredible thing that God chose us before the foundation of the world. And fourthly, adoption has nothing to do with earned favor. You can't earn it. You get picked, you get selected. And particularly because in this passage, it says that we were chosen before the world was formed. But adoption has a specific meaning. We've lost some of the meaning and the richness of this original word. Let me give you uh, just a clear sense of what it means. Adoption, in this, in this phrase, in this passage, it conjures up this concept as we look at high value. Next. It moves from adoption to redemption. But God brought us into his family. Identity secondarily high value. And he redeems us. Before I go there, let me tell you a story. Look, if I tell stories, I get lost in my notes. So I tell stories to keep myself on track. Mm-hmm. Maybe you've heard of the African Children's Square. I don't know. It's a touring group of kids from Africa. And these kids are found often, uh, and the founder of that was in our church in Canada, where I, where I served for 15 years. And so it, it was all started because this man was doing missionary work in Kenya, and as he was driving through some village areas, they picked up a little kid who was out in the middle of nowhere by himself. And so the, the, the driver picked up this little boy and gave him a ride to the next village. And this kid began to sing, and his voice was so amazing. And my friend, the missionary, God spoke to him and said, that's the sound of hope for Africa. It's in the song of the children. And so, and that exploded in his mind, ultimately became a ministry called the African Children's Choir. And they would find these children that were, that were orphan kids, street kids, and they would bring them in and audition them. And the ones that were able to sing, and, and, and well, I was just saying have rhythm every African kid, it seems to me has way more rhythm than I do anyway. And they would teach a, choreo- a choreographed kind of uh, dance uh, and song. And then they would share their testimonies. And they would tour as a group of about 38 to 12-year-olds. They would tour for about 15, 16 months approximately. And they would raise scholarships like Compassion International where you raise scholarships. And they had orphanages where they'd take kids off the streets in Africa, out, the, out of the cities. And they would educate these kids. But so little... I don't, Little Benny was part of, he, he was found on the streets of Nairobi and he was brought in and he was a little eight or nine year old and he began to tour with the African Children's Choir in North America. As they, as they traveled, the chaperones, the aunties and the uncles, they called them, began to notice that Little Benny's suitcase got heavier and heavier. So heavy he couldn't carry, he was dragging his suitcase. And they begin to become suspicious. What does he have in his suitcase? What is this kid collecting? He's very protective of his suitcase. No, Auntie, no, Uncle, I've got this. You can't even carry a penny. No, no, it's okay, Auntie, no, Uncle. Finally, after some weeks of this, they decide they need to explore and discover. To some tears and some uh, lament, they convinced the little boy to open his suitcase. And what did he have in his suitcase? But he had his suitcase, which was filled with dead. Nine volt batteries out of the cordless mics he used for their performances. His little suitcase, and they Why in the world do you have dead batteries in your suitcase? And so they convinced him, he goes, No, no, you can't take, no, no, these are, why? And they finally got out of him through tears that he had a little plan. This little hustler, this little street kid had a plan that after the choir tour was over, he was going back, that he just assumed he was going back to the streets of Nairobi. And he was going to sell these dead nine, nine gold batteries to all of you when you came to tour Nairobi. He was going to hustle these things on the streets. And this is how he was going to survive. He found he saw a little niche here. He could sell batteries on the streets to tourists. Even though he, knew, he had been told that he had been adopted. You see, the African tourist Square were his legal guardians. They would adopted him. And so we went back to Africa after the tour. He would be placed in a, in a, in a school that had uh U.S. candidate COVID education, and he would be trained, he would be cared for, food, clothing, shelter, all the way through university until he got a career. His life by African standards was charmed, but in his mind, he still had the heart of an orphan kid. He was clinging to something that was dead. Can I suggest to you and me that we may be grown up versions of little Billy, but nonetheless, we still sometimes hang on to things that are dead because we don't understand the identity that we have or the value that we have in God's eyes. We talk about high value here. We see this concept communicated through the word redemption. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. You see, in this concept, the word redemption that's used here. It's quite interesting in that it, it, it conjures concepts of the a, of a slave market, the auction, where slaves will be brought in. And, and buyers would, would view the, the uh, lineup of slaves, and they would bid on different slaves. But it's interesting this word doesn't mean simply purchase so that you can have someone to serve you. The concept that's used here in redemption means, and in, in the intention is that you would purchase this person for the, for the desire to set them free. Not to serve you, but to become free men and free women. Scripture says, he who the son sets free is free, indeed, completely, without strings attached. And that's the picture we see when we look at this concept of high value, that God so loved us and so wanted us in his family with adoption that he he paid the price for us. This concept of redemption. So here's the principle. The value determines the purchase price, and the purchase price demonstrates the value. The value determines the purchase price. In God's eyes, how valuable are you? How valuable am I? What was the purchase price? The scripture tells us. We've been redeemed through his blood. God was all in on you. He was all in. Nothing held back. In God's mind and eyes, you are worth everything. And so he gave his very life for us. A God think, a God who loves us so much that he gave his very life for his for his his sons. And his daughters, his future sons and daughters. Was it costly to God? Absolutely. Don't sell yourself short. This is how God sees you. Um, I, I do this with my grandkids. We communicate high value in a number of ways. We have, um, And one of the ways we do it is, uh, is kind of fun. We have little nicknames for our grandkids. And I have one grandson who is our eldest grandchild, and then we have four granddaughters. But my grandson, we have this little nickname. I call him my one and only. Uh, and it was because he is our one and only grandson. So that's the, uh, and I, I call him my favorite grandson. He was Papa, I'm your only grandson. But you're still my favorite grandson. As so we find ways to communicate high value to every one of the grandkids. And for the, for the girls, I can't say you're my favorite granddaughter because that doesn't work. So I say, you're my favorite Brooklyn. You're my favorite Ashland. You're my favorite Michaela. You're my... And then we play with that back and forth. And we have little nicknames for one of our granddaughters. Uh, the nickname we have for a sunshine girl. She's 21 years old now, and we still play this game. It's a game we played since she was probably three. Her name is Ashlyn, and she'll say uh, every once in a while, I'll "Say, Papa, what's that name you call me?" As if I don't know, as if she doesn't know, and her name is Sunshine Girl. And I, oh, well, you're my and I pretend she's four again or five. I say, "You're my Sunshine Girl." And then she'll say, <clears throat> "Why do you call me that name, Papa?" It's because the day you were born, you made our life so much brighter and joyful and you bring joy into our life. It's like the sun came out and, you know, I, I made whatever. And she just laughs. But we play this game because inside every one of us, there's a desire, no matter what our age is, to have someone communicate high value over our life. And because I've done it since she was this big, we have this game that we play. But it's more than a game. It's her way of saying, "Puppy, you haven't said it to me for a little while. Would you say it again? Would you communicate it again to me? Additionally, what I do, I, I made a decision that at the end of every phone call or every visit, uh, I make a decision that I'm gonna tell my family, I love you and give them a big hug. I had, uh, you know, uh, appropriate physical touch to it. When they were little, when the kids were little, I would grab them and I would lift them off the ground. i swing them. Now, my grandson is 6'6", six, six. he picks me up. <laughs> hey. He thinks it's really funny that he can do this. (laughs) And I said, put me down. You're going to break me. I don't work. uh, But nonetheless, uh, this concept of high value that we demonstrate through our family. And when high value is not communicated, when it's not communicated, what ends up happening is that often people go to great lengths to try to prove or to demonstrate that they have value. They'll, they'll chase things, they'll pursue things like wealth or the right car or the trophy spouse or a fluent lifestyle in our culture as some way to anesthetize or to numb that inner pain because they're not sure if they have value or worth. And so they try to prove that things that are superficial and artificial. Before I, I go off of this concept of five value, let me give you a little litmus test that you can do for yourself. How do, you, how do you view yourself? Are you aligning your view of yourself? With God's view of you as in priceless treasure, or do you view yourself less accurately? It's interesting that if you monitor your self talk, when you make a mistake, when, you make, when something doesn't go right, what do you say to yourself? What's the, the circular thoughts, the inter, internal narrative that flows through your mind? Is it positive? Or do, you call, or do you start calling yourself names? You make a mistake. I can't believe I did it. You're such an idiot. I can't believe I did it. You're never going to get it right. You see, if if that's part of your internal narrative, things don't go right, it it demonstrates to you that you don't have the same value that the set that God has for you. We make mistakes, but we're not a mistake. We can can have problems that arise, but we're not a problem. In God's eyes, we're a person of value and and purpose. And then lastly, the blessing in this passage we saw in Ephesians chapter 1 communicates bright future. And we see this actually in the words where he says in verse 3, he's given us every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And it's, it, it communicates that his blessing is not just for this lifetime, but it's for forever. And it goes on for all of eternity. He gives us lavish grace in verse 1. And he gives us unimaginable blessings, it tells us in this passage, and the blessings of his presence forever. Now, I'm going to make a quick point here. and I'm going um, to have Eric read some scriptures for me. But it's interesting that the scripture that's often used for this is Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 11 and 12. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for good and not for evil to give you future and hope. And then it goes on and says this, and you will call upon me and pray to me, and I will listen to you. The backdrop of the scripture, and I love this scripture, by the way, is that the people of Israel had have been, have been wayward. They have been naughty. And because of of their waywardness and sinfulness, there's consequences for their sin. And God has communicated through the prophets. They were going to go into 70 years of Babylonian captivity. So as they're being marched off into Babylonian captivity, the prophet Jeremiah is is pronouncing to them as they're going on this lengthy journey. This is what the Lord says to you. I know the plans I have for you. He says, plans for good. Not for even to give you a future and a hope. If you read on in the, in the, the paragraph that follows this, it says that after 70 years are completed, I will bring you back to this land. I'll reestablish you in this land. Even in our waywardness, God still has to bless us. Yeah. That was good. Mm-hmm. I think heaven just clapped there at that point. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes we look at ourselves and we say, man, I screwed up. And we feel like we've, we've somehow we've walked away from the favor of God and God, God's intention is to bless us. And that doesn't change with time, even if we're wayward. And it's interesting that if you, uh, if you read through that narrative, actually the prophet announces in Isaiah that, that there would be a, a redeemer who would come and his name would be Cyrus. And after 70 years he would, so several hundred years before Cyrus was born and before this event happened in history, God already told the people of Israel that Cyrus would release them and come back. And it's interesting in the book of Daniel, Daniel was praying, he recognizes. That the prophet Jeremiah's uh, word was 70 years would be completed. And he began to pray as the Lord, said, 69 and a half years. Lord, it's 69 and three quarters years. That's kind of the concept. Lord, is almost here. You said you would set your people free. And the scripture says in Daniel that when 70 years were completed to the day, to the very day, Cyrus issued a decree to all the Jews. If you want to go back home, you can go back. And he funded their trip back. That's a God of love and faithfulness and God of blessing. His blessing, identity, I value, bright future.
0: I'll stand up so I can see you guys. Um, yeah, so where Steve's shared, you know, about the blessing and the nature of, of the power of our words to, to bring blessing and life. Um, and scripture is actually really clear about um, the, the power, the incredible power that's in our words. Um, the spiritual power, and it's for good and for evil, actually. And so, um, there's some scriptures that we want to read. Uh, James 3 2 says, For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. Um, and the Lord's warning us that we mess up in a bunch of different ways, um, but especially our, we're, we're called to be watchful over the words that we say and the power of that. And if we're able to, Bridle our tongue. We've got a, a measure of control. Um, that actually, we're perfect. <laughs> that we could be a perfect man if we can control our tongues. Uh, James five twelve says, "But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or in, with any other oath. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, lest you fall into judgment." Um, our words carry a tremendous amount of weight, and so we're at, we're actually like encouraged and commanded to to guard even the yes and the no that we um, say. Proverbs twelve eighteen says, "There is one who speaks like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health." Prober- Proverbs uh, fifteen four says, "A wholesome tongue is a tree of life." But perverseness in it breaks the spirit. And that word perverseness means a twisted truth or half truth. Um, it's just part partial truth. And I think that um, there's there's things in my own life where I realize and recognize that I'm not telling the complete truth and that, um, the scripture says a wholesome tongue. the wholeness, like the, the complete truth is a tree of life. It brings about blessing. Um, but twisted truths have truth, half truths actually, uh, they break the spirit. And I think that there's moments where I've seen in my own life where there's just a brokenness that comes a brokenness in relationship, a brokenness, um, in my own spirit, you know, that, that comes from that, uh, and lastly, Proverbs 18.21 puts it this way. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Thanks.
1: Larry, you want to share? Hey. Going
2: to <clears throat> I'm Larry, and uh, yeah, I'll just share a little bit of my story. Uh, I've been married 51 years and, uh, with my wife, and uh, we have seven children. And uh, our youngest uh, is, were twins, and, uh, twin girls. And uh, the very youngest of the tw- uh, seven was uh, Tracy. And uh, she had this amazing heart that she was just for the down and out. That was kind of where she lived at. We homeschooled our kids till they were through junior high. And so we had about three doors down was this little, uh, it was a residence, but they housed like six older gentlemen, kind of like a, a residential home for old guys. And so uh, as they were homeschooled, uh, Deb would have them uh, draw pictures. And so uh, she would draw pictures for, she had a few of them. Jack was her absolute favorite guy. And, uh, so she would draw pictures for these guys and take it down there and give them to them. The other girls weren't interested in that. I mean, she just had this amazing heart for down and out and kind of people that were less than. And uh, so anyway, six years ago, this year, actually two weeks ago, uh, she took her life. Uh, she had uh, just gotten married nine months earlier And she moved to Louisiana. And she uh, had this argument with her husband. It was really kind of a dumb argument. It was, uh, she worked as a nurse in a prison there in Louisiana. And uh, he wanted, he'd been married before and he wanted his granddaughter to spend the night and then have Tracy take her home the next day. But Tracy had to be at work like, four or so in the morning and so she was going to have to take her an hour the opposite direction and then get back and then get back to work and so it was like this isn't going to work that well and so he just went off he just couldn't handle that and he just said I want you out of my life take your damn dog and get out of here and so she called us and she was just beside herself she couldn't even couldn't even hardly make out what she was saying <laughs> and uh, finally we were able to calm her down enough to kind of get the gist of what was happening i said well let me talk to carrie her husband she put him on the phone he was just said, he just said no she, she didn't want to do this she's out i want her out and so she got back on the phone and we talked just a few minutes longer and she said, I'll call you right back when I can talk. And so we just thought, yeah, okay. So uh, we hung up and uh, probably within five to 10 minutes, it was very quick, I uh, couldn't tell you now. It seemed like just right away, but within five or 10 minutes, he called back and said she shot herself. And uh, we realized that the power of what that last scripture that Eric read was, that that there's life and death, you know, the power of the words can take on us. And I always thought that, like uh, like, Tim, if you and I got in an argument or something and I said, you know, kiss off or whatever, (laughs) you know, it'd be like, I lost my friend. I, you know, that'd be the death of that relationship or something. I had no idea that it could go to that degree that our words were that powerful. Thank goodness all of us in this room don't have an extreme story like that to have to share with people. But it just taught me that, boy, our words are so powerful. In uh, Colossians 4, 6, it tells us that let your conversation uh, be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer
1: everyone yeah thanks larry yep. thanks larry for sharing that yep. I, I get emo- a <clears throat> <clears throat> i knew tracy i knew his daughter and it, it gets me emotional every time i hear you tell the story thank you Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says that we're to watch over, guard our hearts above all else. Well, why? Because out of our heart flows the wellsprings of life. For out of the overflow, Jesus said, of our hearts, our mouths speak. And I'm going to just make another comment here, and then we're going to maybe go to a break. It's interesting that John Gottman, who is a fairly well-known uh, psychologist and a researcher, did a study in this area of the power of words, and he he discovered that that words are loaded with spirit power. As the scripture tells us, that scripture actually is true. And what he discovered is that, that one negative word requires seven positive words or affirmations to be neutralized. So it takes seven to neutralize one negative one. Seven to one, that's pretty powerful. But then he did the research and his research team analyzed the communication patterns in North America. And what he discovered was that we speak about 10 negative comments for every one positive comment. We're not a culture of blessing. We're gonna turn that around though, because we can be, we can step into a culture of blessing. And it's not because we don't think it is, because we don't say it. So we're going to say We're going to speak up and, and say some things. I think this might be a good place to take a break. Can we come back and do a quick overview of them? We'll do some stuff after the break. We're going to start again. <clears throat> Everyone, I'm going to warm up my voice and get it started again. So maybe take a second or two to do that. <clears throat> I think I've decided if I stop talking, <clears throat> it gets worse. So we're going to keep going. It's interesting. That, um, <clears throat> And in the context of a blessing, when we don't hear the words of blessing, a blessing is refused. We get that message that, that and I've heard this, I've asked ministry, that you weren't wanted, or you were a mistake, or you were an accident, or we wanted a boy instead of a girl, or we wish you were more like that, that concept of blessing, refued, refused, mm-hmm. communicates so so rejection. And God wants to communicate to us that he has great value over our lives, identity, high value for right our future. But what's incredibly important we understand is that when we're in a position of authority, a parent, a teacher, a boss, and we're in an authority position, our words have additional power. Our words are weighted. And so life and death is indeed in the power of our words. That makes The scripture makes that very clear. We have to understand that our words must be used for good. They must be used for power. It's interesting... <laughs> A number of years ago, I had I had this uh, clearly demonstrated for me. <clears throat> I was pastoring in Dinuba, California, a small church. And, and a man by the name of Charlie entered my world. He entered the, my world. Uh, Charlie, let me explain who Charlie was. Charlie was a man with Down syndrome. I, I don't know. He probably was... He looked like he was 40, 45 years of age. I'm not sure. Bib overalls. He'd ride around town on a three-wheel adult-sized tricycle with the orange flag behind it. That was Charlie. And Charlie entered my world with a splash. First time I met him, I heard him coming, and he was riding. He was actually yelling, is there a pastor here? Is there a pastor here? And he crashed into his bike, our church had an office and so a sign up there and he, he crashed into the hedge and he, come, he came bounding into the office right up to the receptionist and I'm hearing this noise I'm thinking someone has died is there a pastor here is there a pastor here I'm thinking there's an emergency and uh and the secretary's eyes were this big so I step out of my office and said is there a problem what's the problem and he goes oh are you the pastor yes I'm the pastor what's your name my name is Steve he goes, Pastor, oh, it's terrible. Pastor it's terrible. It's it's a it's an emergency. It's an emergency, Pastor. He said, My my mama's birthday is this week. And I need five dollar. Five dollars. I need five, $5. dollar to buy a, a birthday present, Pastor. Could you could you lend me five dollar? I promise I'll pay it back next Tuesday. Tuesday. And I, I mean I was shell-shocked and I and, and please, Pastor Steve, could you loan me. And so I, I, I looked in my wallet and I had a $5 bill. So I, I gave him i I going to have you play along with me here, would you mind? So I, I gave him, I gave him five bucks. Oh, thank you, Pastor Steve. He said, he paused in the doorway and looked back at me and said, you my friend, right? I said, sure, Charlie, I'm your friend. And he hopped on his bike and off he went, bye, Pastor Steve. And I said to my secretary, I guess what I said to my secretary last, last time I'll see you that $5, man, a great faith that I was, so A week goes by and Tuesday comes, I've completely forgotten about Charlie and my $5. I heard it coming a block away and now he knows my name. <clears throat> so he's calling my name. Uh, at the top of his lungs, Pastor Steve, are you there? Pastor Steve, are you there? Crash lands his bike into the edge. Now he knows where my office is. He goes up the, sta- the stairs, waves to the secretary, bursts right into my office. He said, Pastor Steve, thank you. And he gave me the $5 back. And I said, surprise. Well, thank you. And he said, thank you so much. Thank you so much. He said, oh, okay. have a good day, Pastor Steve. And he turns at the doorway and pauses and says, you my friend, right? Sure, Charlie. You're my friend. I got my money back. I didn't say that. <laughs> Week three, on a Tuesday, back comes Charlie. Hear him coming again. Pastor Steve, are you there? And there was another emergency. And this time, it was like Father's Day. And he needed $5 to buy a gift for his daddy. So I give him 5 bucks. Let me fast forward the story for the sake of my voice and your time. <clears throat> I gave him the five bucks. Another week passed. Here he comes again. And he says, thank you, Pastor Steve. Thank you so much. I, that was, thank you for your kindness. Thank you so much. Um, I began to suspect something was going on here. There was always an event, uh, either a holiday or a birthday. I, I began to suspect he was making this up. Uh, and so in every, every session ended with, you're my friend, right? So I did something a little naughty. You should not deface U.S. currency. But I marked the bill. And Charlie and I handed the same $5 bill back and forth every other Tuesday for nine months. And the day came where Charlie would come into my church. Uh, By the way, he he would always show up at all the wrong times. I'd be in marriage counseling. And because he knew where my office was, he burst into my office. And he would oh, 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 sorry, sorry. Pastor Steve, thank you. Can I borrow my again for an independent state, Pastor Steve? And, so, and the, the poor couple would be wide-eyed, you know. like, And, uh, and then he pause in the door, and he'd look at them and look at me. You're my friend, right? Yeah, my friend. And, and this poor couple were thinking, yeah, you have interesting friends. You know. <laughs> Remember the time he came into a Sunday morning service, I was preaching. He never came in on time, and he always came in noisily. You figure that out by now. So he came in and kind of bustled in. He never said on the end of an aisle. He'd always work his way into the middle of the pew. And he, as he's working his way, and he said to the people around him, last pastor Stephen, he's my friend. And the people chuckled. And then he had, indignantly, he kind of you know, stiffened, and he said, he called me out from the crowd. He said, Pastor Steve, you my friend, right? And I said, yeah, Charlie, you're my friend. He kind of settled back, crossed his arms, and it was like, I told you, you know. <laughs> and then he, he, he would leave. I learned some things through Charlie. He taught me the power of friendship, but he also taught me the power of blessing. Because what Charlie needed so desperately, is what all of us need, is affirmation and approval. He just wanted someone who would speak words of affirmation, even though he baited me with a $5 bill. I mean, his motives may not have been perfectly pure, if you know what I mean. He might have told me a fib every week for nine months. But inside Charlie's heart was this sense of, I need to know that I'm valued. You see, what I found out later, is that Charlie's dad was a pastor. Apparently, Charlie was not welcomed in his church because he made disturbances. But I welcomed him into my world. I didn't know what I was doing. He, I actually didn't welcome him. He burst into my world. <laughs> he did. And he, and he worked his way into my heart. And so that day came when he gave me my $5 back for the last time. And with sadness, he came in. And he wasn't his typical self. He didn't bound in. He didn't come in with noise. He came in quietly. And I said, Charlie, are you OK? Or are you sick? He said, no, Just I'm not OK. I'm not OK. I'm very sad. What's wrong, Charlie? He said, My family's moving to Oregon. They're moving to Oregon. And I won't be here next Tuesday. And I stood and I put my arms around him, my bald. Because I thought to myself, he's taught me what it means to love. And to love the people that I pretend to walk by. People that need to know that, who doesn't need to know that that they have a value and there's a purpose for their life. And for Charlie, the proof of friendship, the demonstration of love and approval was found in in the exchange of a five dollar bill. He changed my life forever. I don't know what might have been spoken of for Charlie as he was a kid growing up. I imagine he was, if I can be very, I I imagine he was annoying, you know, because he was loud. And he was delightfully obnoxious at times. And he, he, he would just insert himself into my life at all the wrong moments. But for me, it was beautiful to see this guy come alive and feel loved. And that last time I said goodbye to him, he said that we both cried together. And he's paused in the doorway for the last time and said, you my friend, right? And I said, Charlie, you're my friend. And I meant it with everything inside of me. That's the kingdom of God. That's the culture of blessing. You want to come read some scriptures for me? <laughs>
0: Yeah. Um, what's beautiful about the the scriptures is that they're. I, I feel like there's a training manual for how to do this. It's like just woven in throughout the scripture. It's God's like is deposited because mm-hmm. uh, I, I I think He knew <laughs> that a lot of us might not get this. That we might not get. Uh, a dad or a you know a, a, an authority leader that would come in and step into our lives, and so he 's done this for us and given this this to us and um, so i 'm going to read some of these passages that God is what what he 's done and said the perfect father says in ephesians one four just as he's chosen us before the foundations of the world that we would be holy and blameless that there is a choosing that he he has made a choice like we've talked about already before the world was formed before there was anything created there was a choice that was made an adoption and a plan to make us whole to make us like whole and new and uh, fully alive and holy um without blame And in love, uh, he, he had a plan for us and every good father has a a plan. Um, and we see that in that passage, Jeremiah 31, three says, the Lord has appeared of old to me saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Um, God's love is everlasting. And he, he tells us that specifically, um, ephesians one three blessed be the God and Father of our Lord jesus christ who 's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places god hasn 't re- withheld any spiritual blessing from us um, he 's all in he, he is ready to give abundantly more than we could ask or imagine he 's a good father hebrews thirteen five says Let your conduct be without covetousness, be content with such things as you have." For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I love that that connection there. Because I think most, I, I'll speak for myself. I think that covetousness and my discontent often sping, springs from this place of lack. Like I don't have enough. I don't have, I, I, I got to make a way for myself. I got to provide for my own self. And I love that. A heavenly Father, a God a, has presented Himself as someone that, and He says, "I'll never leave you or forsake you." He's committed to walk with us and never abandon us. Psalm one thirty nine seventeen through eighteen says, "How precious are your thoughts to me, O God? How great if, is the sum of them? If I should count them, they would be more numbered than the sand of the sea. And when I awake, I'm still with you." Just let that truth sink in for a minute. His thoughts towards us are more than the sand of the sea. And we're we're staying in Sunset District and we're able to like see the beach down the road and just that. I mean, that's a massive beach, the number of sand in that place. God has more thoughts towards us and they're all good and they're all kind and they're all for us and not against us. And I think that what he's trying to communicate is that there is such an overwhelming amount of care and forethought that he's put uh, towards us. And this is the culture that he's invited us into. This is the family that he's inviting us into. Um, we're his forethought, not his afterthought. And we're in his every thought.
1: The point here is that God is always thinking about us with deepest love, deepest care, and deepest concern. Sorry, I should have kept talking apparently here. We're going to tell a story, an illustration, and then we're going to go into a prayer time. If I can talk about that. A number of years ago, I'm actually, we're going to go at the prayer time. I'm going to say my voice about that. I'll tell the story after lunch. Is that okay? Remind me to tell the story about stained glass. Okay. Uh, why don't you, I'm going to have Eric come on and just yeah. explain this.
0: Yeah. So we're mm-hmm. going to, um, we're actually going to break up and we want to demonstrate uh, what we're talking about in this family that we're, we've been invited in. And